Welcome to Slim and Satisfied, a podcast about weight loss for women dealing with hormonal imbalances. I'm Daphna Chazen, registered dietitian and weight loss coach, and I invite you to join me weekly for conversations, practical strategies, and resources that will lead you on the right path to feeling satisfied with your body and your life. And now, let's get to today's episode. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the Slim and Satisfied podcast. This is episode number nine, and I'm your host, Daphna Chazen. I'm so excited and grateful that you've joined me today. Since this is the first episode in a three-part series about PCOS specifically, so I'm going to be dedicating three episodes to covering the basics of a good PCOS diet. We're going to talk about exactly what types of foods we want to include, what are some success boosters that are not food-related and we can use to optimize our results as well as the best practices around supplements and using vitamins and minerals, again, to augment your success as you're taking big steps to getting healthier. Today, we're going to get started with the specifics of a solid, good, healthy PCOS diet. But before we jump into that, I want to just take a moment to give you a little bit of background. If you have PCOS, you're going to know the vast majority of what I'm about to say, but I want to set the stage for us in a good way so that we can all be on the same page and get the most out of this mini training. This is, by the way, very similar to the things I go through with my clients. Of course, I go into more detail and provide a lot more tools, tips, and tricks and strategies when I'm working with someone But this is giving you a sneak peek into what it's like to work with me in my practice. If you have PCOS and you are coming to me to improve your eating habits, lose some weight, reduce sugar cravings, and improve your relationship with food, among the many other things that I help women accomplish. So you may want to keep a notepad by your side. Of course, don't do this if you're driving, but if you're looking to get a lot of value out of this and you want to make sure that you retain a lot of the information, I'd recommend listening a couple times, taking some notes, as well as reading the show notes where a lot of this information is going to be found. Good? So as you likely know, PCOS is an endocrine and metabolic disorder that's affecting approximately 10 and up to 20%, according to some reports, of women of childbearing age. There are several types of PCOS and many different manifestations of this condition, and it really does vary from one person to another. Most of the women that I work with who have PCOS experience many, many challenging symptoms and health issues, including sugar cravings, acne, hair growth in some areas that resemble more of a male pattern, baldness as a result of high testosterone levels, as well as anxiety and depression, and of course, infertility due to lack of ovulation. We also see variability in the frequency of menstrual cycles that someone will have. So some women come in and they have not had a period in many years, whereas other women do get a regular period or maybe they get it every other month or several times a year. So this can definitely vary greatly from one woman to the next. The good news is that regardless of what symptoms a woman is experiencing with PCOS, diet has been shown to be more effective than any other treatment for PCOS. And that, by the way, includes medications. And since we all eat, 
It means that we all have the ability to use food as a very powerful tool in managing PCOS. The key here is to really be intentional about it, put some thought into our diet and eating habits, and make sure that we're making changes that really support our goals and the things that we want to accomplish, whether it's getting to a healthy weight, reducing depression, or starting a family. Changing the way that we eat and what we eat can really make a huge difference and improve many, if not all, of the symptoms of PCOS. And although PCOS is not currently curable, I've worked with many, many women who reversed their symptoms through healthy lifestyle changes to such a high degree that they no longer experience the effects of PCOS day to day as they used to. So a good PCOS diet can really, truly make you feel like a whole new person and restore your self-confidence and your femininity. Now, before we dive into the specifics of a solid PCOS eating plan, I want to speak about what it means to be at a healthy weight. I talk quite a bit on the podcast about weight loss and getting to your healthy weight, But I wanted to take a moment to really explain what it means to be at a healthy weight since I realized that the term healthy weight is a little bit vague and I use it for a very specific reason. So let's talk about this. What is a healthy weight? When I say healthier weight or I say reaching your healthy weight range or things like that, I'm not referring to the green zone on a BMI chart or to a weight that we sometimes randomly pick because we like a certain number. That's not usually what I'm talking about. I very rarely help women come up with a goal weight that's based on a BMI chart or based on an ideal body weight that comes from some equation or some random calculation. There is actually a very easy way, a much easier way than that, and a much more realistic way than that to know exactly what your specific healthy weight is. And the way I view it is through the following three components that I'm going to tell you about right now. Ready? The first component or rather clue that your current body weight is a healthy weight for you is that you've gotten to this weight by eating a high quality diet. So that diet is based on real food that's minimally processed, and you're staying within a calorie range that's relatively constant, meaning you're eating about the same amount of calories every day, and that seems appropriate for your body size and activity level. I'm going to give you a little hint here. For most women, that's going to be around 1,600 to 2,200 calories per day, roughly, and On top of the calorie level that you're staying at and making sure that the quality is good, you're remaining mindful of your food choices and your portions. If you've been following a regimen like this for a few weeks or months and you've lost some weight, but it no longer produces that weight loss and you're staying stable at a certain number, that may be your healthy weight. That may be where your body wants to be, especially if you feel that you're eating well, and that there's not much else to tweak at this point. That's usually a sign that that's your body's happy weight, where it's getting good nutrition, it has settled into a certain number on the scale, 
And that number may be higher than you'd like it to be, but it's wise to continue maintaining this weight and getting comfortable there because many times what women will do, we we push. We push too hard and we try to diet and we try to take off another five, another seven, another 10 pounds, which usually would necessitate more extreme measures. And that often leads to rebound weight gain. So in that situation, we're going to maybe lose those additional few pounds, but we're going to quickly regain them back plus a few additional. So high quality eating and letting your body naturally settle into its happy weight is really key and a really smart way to go. The second component, the second clue that I want you to think about regarding your healthy weight and where that may be for you is body acceptance. When you're at your healthy weight, you're feeling comfortable in your skin, you're at peace with your body, meaning you're satisfied with how you look, and you refer to or think about your body with positive terms. This is so very important because no matter how much thinner or how much slimmer you're going to be, if you're not accepting your body, it's never going to be enough. You're never going to be satisfied with how you feel. And that's why I named this podcast Slim and Satisfied. And this is a total tangent that we're going to go off on, but I'll keep it really short. I wanted women to know that, yes, we all want to be slim. We all want to be in a body that feels good and thin and, and you know, at a lower weight, But it's also very important to feel satisfied, not only with the food that you're eating and making sure that you're not hungry physically, but emotionally. If you're hungry for feeling more acceptance, if you have a hunger for feeling peace with your body that you cannot find, that's not a healthy weight for you. And quite honestly, there may be be never, there may never be a healthy weight for you if you're struggling to accept your body and love it, regardless of the number of the scale on the scale. So body acceptance is very, very important. And the next thing that's really important is quality of life. The weight that's healthiest for you is the one that allows you to move more easily. You have the energy to perform day-to-day activities and things that you have to be doing without running out of energy or feeling irritable or feeling like you're not showing up as your best self when you're with family or at work or in social situations. That's a really important clue into how your body feels for you mentally. If you feel uncomfortable in your body, you feel self-conscious, that's not a good healthy weight for you. But if you're at the point where you've done some work, you know that you're eating healthier, you know that you're working on reducing stress, sleeping better, moving in a way that feels good to you, and your body settles into a certain number, that could be where it's at. That could be the right place for you to stay. And I always, always tell women that it's not about how low you can go with your weight. It's really about how comfortably you can maintain it because you never want to be the person in the room that feels good and looks good and is happy with the number on the scale, even though nobody but you probably will know that number but you can't eat this and you can't eat that and you're really struggling to stay at that lower weight. That's not a good place to be mentally. So it may be wise, it may be smart to accept a slightly higher weight, to accept that you're 10 or 15 pounds above what you thought you you needed to be at. That doesn't matter. 
make sure that you're mentally comfortable and that you're able to have a good quality of life and accept your body in a positive way. That's going to serve you way longer into the future than just getting to a certain number on the scale or losing a certain number of pounds. And speaking of quality of life, I do want to touch upon medications. Anytime a woman's losing weight, chances are she's coming off of certain medications, she's reducing blood pressure, her blood sugar is better controlled, she may not need cholesterol medication, and that's a big deal. Those are true non-scale victories that you can count as big wins. So I want you to think about that. What is the weight at which you're taking the minimal amount of medications that you can take and that your blood blood work is looking good, your doctor is happy, you're reducing the risk of any potential diseases that may come along with PCOS, like cardiovascular disease, again, hypertension, of course, diabetes. Anytime you're mitigating your risks for any of those conditions, that's a big plus. And that is likely your body telling you that it's happy at this weight. So now that I hopefully gave you a new perspective on what a healthy weight means, let's talk about the components that every PCOS diet needs to include. You'll see that when we put together a PCOS eating plan, we're very intentional about what foods we include. And that's because, as I said before, we want to specifically target certain root causes of PCOS and address them head on with food. What we're hoping to accomplish is a reduction in symptoms that are caused by hormonal imbalances, the underlying hormonal imbalances that the vast majority of women with PCOS experience. For example, we know that women with PCOS have higher levels of the hormone insulin. Insulin is a hormone that helps the body turn sugar from food into energy. However, women with PCOS are often insulin resistant, which means that their body doesn't get the sugar into the cells as it should, and instead sugar then builds up in the blood. As a result of this, the body overproduces insulin to try and correct the spike in blood sugar. That often causes a double whammy situation where both sugar and insulin stay very, very high. And insulin is linked to a lot of different hormones. One of them is testosterone. So when insulin levels are high, testosterone levels are also going to be shooting up. And when testosterone is very high in women, that's when we often see things like acne, facial hair, as well as lack of ovulation, which leads to infertility. So of course you could take a medication to help with acne or to ovulate, things like Clomid would help with ovulation. And many times when you go to the doctor, that's their main line of intervention. That's the first line approach that they're gonna take to kind of suppressing those symptoms. And many times it is necessary to medicate. I'm not saying that medications are wrong, but if possible, wouldn't it be better to get to the root cause and reduce insulin naturally so that there's less testosterone secreted? That's the kind of approach we can take with the diet, and it's highly effective in most cases. So what are the key areas that we need to address with PCOS, with a good PCOS plan? We're going to cover the two main ones today because this is the core, this is the foundation of the PCOS diet, and that's where most women get started. The first one is reducing insulin resistance. Before we talk about insulin resistance, one important point to make here is that insulin isn't bad, and eating carbs 
is not wrong. I truly believe that women with PCOS should eat carbohydrates and that a plan that has a variety of carbs makes healthy eating much more enjoyable and much more sustainable. But there's definitely an art and a science to including carbs healthfully in a PCOS plan. You can learn more about the basics of smart carbing in an episode that I did previously. I believe it's episode number two, so you can go back and I'll link to it below. You'll find the five smart ways that I recommend women incorporate carbs into their day. So definitely go and check that out. A lot of good information in that episode. So how do we include carbohydrates and still control blood sugar and make sure that insulin is not becoming more of an issue than it already is for a lot of women with PCOS? Well, the first thing that we can do to reduce the spikes of insulin that we oftentimes see is to add more fiber. Most women in general, not just those with PCOS, don't get the right amount of fiber daily. And it's a shame because fiber is super magical in the body. (laughs) I really believe that. When you look at all the different things that fiber does, you'll understand that if you're not including it in your day, you're missing out on a lot of benefits. Anything from satiety, which is the feeling of fullness, so it really can help with not feeling hungry as you're losing weight, curbing sugar cravings, reducing cholesterol, as well as, of course, the most well-known benefit of fiber, which is improving regularity and bowel habits. And if you listen to episode number two, you know that we don't even absorb the calories from fiber foods. So it's kind of a freebie, which does make it even more of a superstar in my book. So if you can gradually increase your fiber intake to about 30 grams a day, you're going to see amazing results. You're going to feel a whole lot better. You're going to have more energy. Your weight loss is going to be become easier. And of course, all the other benefits are going to reveal themselves over the long haul. So you want to make sure that you're incorporating enough fiber foods. And again, go right back to the first episode about carbs, which is episode number two, and you can find all the information there. And if you haven't already gotten your hands on a copy of my PCOS meal prep starter kit, I don't know what you're waiting for because over there, it's all calculated for you. You have all the great fiber foods listed as part of your three-day anti-inflammatory meal plan, and that is an excellent resource to get started. You don't even need to think about it. It's all done for you. So go to daphnachazen.com forward slash PCOS plan and get your hands on a copy there. The second way to reduce insulin levels is by omitting sugar. I know that this is an obvious one, but hear me out here. I want to make an important distinction about sugar right here. There are two types that I want you to consider, naturally occurring sugar and added sugar. Let's start with added sugar. This is the one that you want to limit or completely avoid because it's not adding any value to your diet. So usually we refer to this as empty calories, and this is the type of sugar that also gets absorbed super quickly. So anytime we eat a sugary food, say a donut, for for example, or ice cream or a piece of candy, it's broken down really quickly and it spikes blood sugar because the body absorbs it right away. This is going to shoot insulin levels way, way up. Generally speaking, when we're looking at carbohydrates and sugar, the faster something gets broken down and absorbed, the higher and more dramatically it's going to increase blood sugar levels, and as a response, it's going to shoot insulin way up as well. Since there's no nutrition the body can extract from that donut or ice cream or piece of chocolate, and there's no fiber, it's going to very quickly process it and store those calories from sugar and fat as fat. So 
Any time that the body doesn't need the extra calories or that it can't get any good nutrition out of the food, it's going to typically store it as excess. And that usually means either fat stores or going into your liver. So that's a significant concern with sugar, particularly for insulin resistance. Perhaps the major issue with this is related to the gut. I'm going back to the gut because I really believe that it's important to think about and we often do not. We know that the bacteria in our gut feed on specific types of foods, some like fiber, some like aspartame, the artificial sweetener, some some like sugar. And the more we consume these things, the more that the specific population that feeds on that food grows. So if the bacteria that feeds on simple sugar gets fed all the time in large quantities by food that is sugary in the diet, that is the kind of bacteria that's going to grow and thrive. And then before you know it, you're going to have a lot of sugar-eating bacteria in your gut in very large quantities, and that's why we oftentimes continue to crave sugar. The way that this would work is that anytime that gut bacteria feed on sugar, they actually, the gut produces these neurotransmitters, which are basically messengers that tell the brain to increase the desire for that particular food. And that's how many women find themselves in a cycle of sugar cravings. So the more frequently we feed the sugar-eating bacteria, the more they're going to grow and thrive and the more messengers they're going to produce to tell the brain to keep feeding them that sugary stuff. So eliminating sugar goes well beyond just not having empty calories in your diet. It's more about how you set up your digestive tract and your system and the signaling to your brain about what kind of foods you're going to desire and what kind of foods are going to feel strongly appealing to you. And if you've ever felt like you're addicted to sugar or that you have uncontrollable sugar cravings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I strongly encourage my clients to omit sugar completely from their diet for at least the first four to six weeks when we're starting on a new eating plan. It really does help to reset their palate and lower the threshold to sweetness. And that's a really good benefit of just omitting sugar on top of what we've already talked about. Anytime that you're exposed to sugar, your threshold, your level that you're accepting of sugar is going to rise, meaning what used to taste sweet, what used to be satisfying, isn't satisfying anymore. And the more you're exposed to it, the higher that level goes. Anytime you're emitting sugar, it resets It resets your palate, it resets how you perceive sweetness, and once you introduce it back, it's not going to have as strong of a hold on you, and you're going to feel a lot more in control around sweets and treats. So that's just a little bonus there that everyone really enjoys. And that's not to say that you'll never eat cake or you'll never enjoy ice cream ever again. That's definitely not my approach. But initially, I do think that it's important until we dial in the diet quite a bit, and then we introduce sugar back, and we can do it in a much more controlled manner. And that, by the way, becomes much more enjoyable than having sugar in your day all the time where you learn to just not appreciate it and take it for granted. Anytime you eliminate something and bring it back, you learn to enjoy it more, you learn to appreciate it more, and that's a big, big part of healthy eating. 
Since we're on the subject of sugar and sweetness, I want to mention something regarding artificial sweeteners, which a lot of women use to replace sugary foods, and that's mostly okay, but I would want to be cautious with too many artificial sweeteners, especially things like aspartame and the other chemically produced ones. If you'd like to use a bit of stevia here and there, I think that's totally fine. The issue, though, with consuming too many artificial sweeteners is that some of them were shown to change the way the body releases insulin and to also promote the desire for sugary foods. There are some studies that show that because we get a sensation of sweetness, the brain is expecting a high amount of calories, but artificial sweeteners do not contain any calories, so it almost causes some confusion in the brain, and that's why a lot of times we would feel more desire to eat sweets after we drank a diet soda or we ate a sugar-free candy or something that contains an artificial sweetener. So just be careful, listen to your body, see how you respond to things that have artificial sweeteners, and overall I would say that since they're highly processed, it's a good idea to limit them as much as possible. Okay, moving on, but we're still on the topic of eating to limit insulin resistance, and that's a topic that's kind of broad, so that's why it has a lot of different components. So stay with me here. A lot of good information that you're going to be able to practice. I just want you to get an understanding of what are some of the things that are really impactful as far as reducing insulin resistance. So we mentioned added sugar, and I think we all understand why that's something we want to limit. Let's talk a little bit about naturally occurring sugar. We do include a lot of foods that have naturally occurring sugar in the early stages of new PCOS plans. So things like fruit, some dairy, and of course foods with fiber that have sugar naturally, like sweet potatoes and other root vegetables. As long as we're eating minimally processed versions of these foods, they're perfectly fine and can be incorporated into the healthy regimen here. Later on, we may modify how we introduce them or the composition of the meals that they're included in, and that's really when we're fine-tuning the diet and really making sure that what you're doing is producing big, big results. But in the beginning, there's not a problem with including fruit and including sweet potatoes and all of that good stuff that's naturally sweet. If you're just getting started with eating healthier with PCOS, I want you to know that I do appreciate how hard and challenging it can be to avoid sugar. I know that very few women can follow this perfectly, and I don't think being on track 100% of the time is necessary at all. I spoke about a practical way to practice moderation in episode number eight, where I discussed the 80-20 concept, so make sure to go check that out since I know that many of my clients feel relieved to know that they have some flexibility with their healthy eating plan. Of course, the closer they follow the plan, the better results they see, but I often leave the choice up to them as to how adherent, how compliant they want to be with the new plan that we devise together. Moving on to talking about another important aspect of a PCOS diet, which is taming inflammation. We hear the term inflammation being thrown around a lot in the health space today, and it's used a little bit loosely. So for our purposes, for PCOS, we're talking about low-grade inflammation, which basically means that the body is constantly in a state of trying to heal itself, trying to repair itself. Anytime that we experience inflammation, we're going to see poor function of cells. We're going to see things like blood cell counts going up high. The immune system is very aroused. And that means that the body is basically fighting a problem. 
The reason that inflammation is significant is that it can very quickly lead to other health problems like cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, more accumulation of fat in the abdomen, and things like that. So we want to tame inflammation as much as possible. And again, the good news is that there's a lot that can be done with the diet to control inflammation pretty successfully. So what are some of the things that help reduce inflammation that we can incorporate from a nutrition perspective? The best way to truly reduce inflammation is to focus on plant-based foods. That's due to the many, many vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants that plants include, plants include naturally, that help fight off inflammation in the body. So we're talking about tons and tons of vegetables, and I like to break vegetables down into two categories. We have our non-starchy vegetables and our leafy greens. What we're eliminating here, we're not eliminating, but we're kind of removing from this discussion is what we talked about before, which is your starchy vegetables. So things like sweet potato, corn, peas, those are really not vegetables, those are more starches. So we're going to leave those aside for now. What we're focusing on for the discussion regarding inflammation is your non-starchy vegetables, which are any type of vegetable with the exception of what we just talked about, corn, peas, potatoes, and things that are starchy. Things like tomatoes and cucumbers, mushrooms, beets, peppers, onions, of course, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, asparagus. The list is pretty long, but I think you get the point. Any non-starchy vegetable is good and you want to incorporate it. I hear a lot about high sugar vegetables like carrots and beets. Don't worry about that. That's not the kind of stuff we're focusing on. Non-starchy vegetables, we have a goal of eating at least four colors per day, and I often recommend about two to three cups of non-starchy veggies each day. You can spread this out across meals, you can incorporate them as snacks, you can have them raw, you can have them cooked, however works for you. Just make sure that it's amounting to at least two to three cups measured raw. The other component as far as vegetables is your leafy greens. I separate them out because they're so important that I want to give them their own individual category to make sure that you're getting those in very intentionally. Any leafy green that's dark, so not iceberg lettuce, but things like romaine, spinach, kale, arugula, any type of mixed greens and spring mix and things like that, those are great. Make sure that you're getting about three cups measured raw of packed leaves in your day. Of course, if you cook down three cups of spinach, it's gonna be very little and that counts. So just make sure that you're getting them measured in the raw state. On top of getting the right amount and the right variety of colors of vegetables, you wanna make sure that what you're eating is minimally processed. Anytime that you're consuming a product that has gone through a lot of processing, it's losing nutritional value, and that's, there's probably a lot of additives and other ingredients that are added in there that can promote inflammation. So you want to focus on food in its natural state. If you find yourself purchasing a lot of foods with packages or foods that are very shelf-stable, that's a big red flag that you're not buying enough fresh stuff. So after you're done listening to today's episode, I want you to go open up your fridge and take a look at what's in there. There should be at least one type of lean protein, maybe chicken or turkey or fish, as well as fresh eggs and a couple varieties of fruits and vegetables, ideally four different types. So maybe two fruits and two different types of veggies, as well as some leafy leafy greens. If you open up your fridge and all this stuff is in there, you're in pretty good shape. So good job. 
Since we're talking about fruits and vegetables, I want to mention something regarding organic produce. I get a lot of questions about whether or not someone should buy organic, and my answer is always the same. I really don't think that you have to buy organic, but it's beneficial if you can afford it and if you can find it. Many times, pesticides and what they spray our produce with can be inflammatory and can be damaging to the body. However, Eating fruits and vegetables in and of itself mitigates a lot of the inflammatory damage. So there's much more benefits in eating conventional produce than avoiding it altogether just because of pesticides. If you do want to buy some produce that's organically grown, a great resource to consult is the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 lists that are put out every year by the Environmental Working Group. I'm going to include a link to this below. It's on their website. But what these lists basically show is that most heavily and least heavily sprayed or contaminated produce as far as pesticides. And the last and final way regarding taming inflammation that I want to mention is adding specific anti-inflammatory spices, herbs, and different ingredients when you're cooking. Things like ginger, turmeric, cinnamon, clove, and garlic are shown to be helpful in reducing inflammation. So we don't have a ton of studies about these foods and about these components, but there's pretty good evidence to show that they can help. And we also know that they can't hurt. The worst thing, your food tastes really good and you get very creative in the kitchen. And that's a very good thing for overall healthy eating in general. So I'm going to link below to a handout that I give my clients with the top 10 anti-inflammatory foods so that you can see some more information about that. And I want you to get creative, get in the kitchen, find some recipes that are going to help you incorporate a lot of those spices into your meals. If you're not sure how to get started, you're not that creative in the kitchen, or you don't know exactly where to find the right recipes for PCOS and anti-inflammatory eating, you can, again, go ahead and check out my PCOS meal prep starter kit because it has, I believe, close to 30 different recipes that you can start incorporating. They're all very easy. They don't use any fancy ingredients, and they're going to be delicious. So make sure you go to daphnachazen.com forward slash PCOS plan and download a copy. And the very final thing I want to mention regarding anti-inflammatory eating is adding healthy fats. Having the right type of fat in your diet in the correct amounts can be very beneficial for reducing inflammation and really making your diet a lot more satisfying and delicious. Because as you likely know, fats enhance the flavor and the mouthfeel of a lot of different dishes. The vast majority of fat in the diet should come from plants. So these are typically unsaturated fats, things like avocados, nuts and seeds, olive, olive oil, avocado oil, flax and chia seeds, as well as things like nut butters that do not have added sugar. I also encourage women to use some saturated fat sources, and I have no problem with including things like grass-fed butter, some cheese. Of course, some desserts and ice cream are going to be mixed in there. But for the most part, day-to-day, -day, you want the majority of your fat in the diet to come from unsaturated food sources. That being said, you want to stay mindful of portions because fat does have a lot of calories. It has double the amount of calories that protein or carbohydrates have. So portions are important, and I often tell my clients to try to not fall prey to some of the trends that are out there now, like MCT oils or adding butter to your coffee and all of that stuff that's likely not producing meaningful results or exerting enough of a benefit for that matter, especially for women with PCOS. 
There are two types of oils that you definitely want to avoid altogether, and those are trans fats and industrial seed oils. Trans fats are very easy to spot because they'll usually be in foods that have a label. So if a food has a package, it does have a label. And when you look at the label, you should be able to clearly see if something contains trans fats or not. If you're in the store and you're picking up an item that has trans fats, put it back and look for a different, healthier alternative. You'll usually see it in frozen foods, things like baked products, desserts, as well as some candy and other processed foods, usually stuff that's shelf-stable. So if you buy any pastries that come prepackaged, things like donuts or danishes, those will typically have trans fats. As well as frozen items like chicken pot pie and crescent rolls typically have trans fats. Many food companies have taken trans fats out of their products because of the research and because it was shown to be very, very damaging, but they're still out there. There are still a lot of products that contain them, so make sure to always, always look at the label. Regarding industrial seed oils, be very careful with vegetable oil, sunflower, corn, and even canola oil because they are highly inflammatory. They're extracted and produced through a chemical process that makes them very unhealthy to consume. They're high in omega-6 fats, which are pro-inflammatory, so they promote inflammation. We typically have too much omega-6 since they're in many foods in our diet anyway, and we have a disproportionate amount of them in the standard diet that we all consume. So the ideal ratio between omega-6 to omega-3 fats in the diet is 4 to 1. But our typical American diet has a ratio that's much higher. It's closer to 20 omega-6 to 1 omega-3s. And that's definitely one of the reasons that we see so much inflammation-related health problems. So one of the best ways that we can reduce inflammation is shift the ratio and eat more omega-3s and less omega-6s. So I'm going to talk about omega-3s in another episode. It's going to be in part three of this series, but I just want you to know that omega-3s come from things like fish and seafood, as well as eggs, walnuts, and chia and flax seeds. So we want to make sure that we're looking for foods that are fortified with omega-3s, which many are now. Since that's going to also help shift the ratio in favor of the omega-3s, which is what we want. So definitely pay attention to industrial seed oils, too many saturated fats, a lot of trans fats should definitely not be a part of your diet. And these are all things in addition to increasing the vegetables and choosing minimally processed foods that are going to reduce and tame that inflammation to a very high degree. And to put this all into practice pretty quickly and easily, you can get started right away with my PCOS meal prep starter kit. I've put together an anti-inflammatory, insulin-sensitizing diet for you that takes into account everything that I've covered today. And I know that we went through a lot of different things, so I wanted to make sure that you don't have to piece it all together. I've done that for you. Go to www.daphnachazen.com forward slash PCOS plan, and you're going to be able to download a copy right there. Make sure to check out the show notes below to all the things that I've referenced and all the information that we've covered. And I'm going to see you here again next week with part two of the PCOS Basics series. Bye for now.